0: Aaron Graham talks about learning the difference between life and death in Guadalajara, Mexico.
1: So he says, hey, kid, get your gun. I want to go for a little drive. I said, where are we going? He says, uh, you'll see. I'm like, okay. So pop down, go in his car. He says, hey, kid, turn the stopwatch on on your Casio Ironman. I'm like, why? He says, you'll see. So I'm like, okay, I got my gun because I'll see and we're going to go where we're going to go and I'll see it and turn on my watch because I'll see. So we're driving, and all of a sudden we pull up in front of this house that's totally overgrown and uh, gate busted off the front, and it's a big—it looks like a big property. and So he says, okay, turn your watch off. Tell me how long it took us to get here. So I turn it off. He says, how long? I said, 13 minutes. He says, that's the difference between life and death in Guadalajara. I'm like, okay, so you got to tell me something because I don't know where we're at. He says, we're at 881 Lope de Vega where Kiki was tortured for three days and murdered.
0: Welcome To Game of Crimes. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome back. This is episode 34 of the most awesome podcast on the internet, and I am the most awesome host of this podcast on the internet, currently on this podcast. I'm Morgan Wright, and I'm here literally with my partner in crime.
2: Hi, y'all. Steve Murphy here. You can call me Murph. You know what you can call him. I know what I call him.
0: Mr... You call me Mr. They Mis- call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr.
2: Uh, Jackass. I mean, uh, yeah. Mr. Morgan. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you
0: what, Sidney Poitier, you know, just obviously recently passed away, you know, in the heat of the night, one of the great detective roles, you know, yeah. they call me Mr. Tibbs.
2: Yep. He was a know? great actor.
0: Oh, man. And played that good, too. That was a good movie. Anyway, hey, yep. guys, we kind of digress for a minute, but hey, everybody, welcome back. The yep. next episode of Game of Crimes, hey, before we get started talking about all the good stuff that we always do... Just quick housekeeping. Uh, give us, head on over to Apple and now Spotify, you can rate us on both. Give us the five stars. Tell us, you know, hey, that, hey, we're you recognize us for busting our humps each and every week to bring you quality content, quality guests. And by the way, just because we're just darn good guys, dash, gosh darn it.
2: Yes. You are so right. right.
0: That's right, mate. And head on over there, as they say in Australia, head on over there to our website, Gameofcrimespodcast.com, we've got a lot, our new book list is there. So you got to listen to watch all, all of the books that we have out there. Jay Dobbins, two of his books are on there, uh, guest a couple episodes ago. So we'll have more guests with books or movies, you know, depending on what they have coming out there, merch, a uh, mailing list. So head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. You definitely want to do that for this episode because Aaron Graham had a ton of pictures. So <laughs> a ton. And I am, Telling you right now, the first picture I put up there, it's the one of him side by side of Pablo Escobar. And you tell me that Pablo's not still alive. Pablo's not dead, Murph. It's like the moon landing. You faked it. You think it. He's not dead. He looks like Aaron Graham.
2: And Aaron will probably never speak to us again. And I know he's not going to send us any more pictures. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. And
0: also uh, follow us over there on the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, where we just actually, we went from recording our random surprise episode on the uh, Colleyville uh, synagogue hostage situation. A good friend of mine is the chief of police in Colleyville, Michael C. Miller. You saw him on the news talking about that. So we just did a Patreon episode about that. So we went into it. We had some good discussions. And by the way, both of us actually said really great things about the FBI and their hostage rescue team. And and we do today. You know, yep. well done, guys. Uh, people are alive today because of uh, what good people did uh, in Colleyville that day.
2: Yep. You know, that's, that's guys with with balls of steel that are going in front of somebody they know has a gun.
0: And maybe bombs, too. Remember? Because he said yep. he had bombs, too. So, yeah. God bless you guys. Takes, it take, takes some cojones of steel to do that stuff. So yep. we'll have to come up with a shirt for that. You know, huevos grandero, you know, el Estelio, <laughs> <laughs> Stelio That's a new stilio. word. <laughs> It is a new word now, El Celio. But you got to go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where all the good stuff is. It's where we talk about like our random surprise episode. We may have a couple surprises coming up. Um, We're looking at doing another series after our highly successful Narco series, our 12 part series with Steve and JP. So we're looking at doing another series. But in the meantime, we've got some great stuff coming up. Uh, The 31st, uh, or is it the 28th? What, What is it? Yeah, the 28th, whatever. It's this coming Sunday. I forget. We're doing our live stream, uh, and we're doing it on American History X. So it's never too late to join and come see Murph and I do our Narcometer review of American History X with Ed Norton.
2: January 30th. Sunday.
0: January 30th. I knew it was sometime this month. That's all that matters. <laughs> but you know what? You know how you find out? Go sign up on Patreon, and you'll get the note where it's automatically written in there. So head on over there. Uh, also use our email, Game of Podcast at gmail.com. Over at PayPal or paypalme crimes, whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and to help us bring you more exciting content. Now, quick disclaimer: this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the stories extremely seriously, but
2: as you can tell, we never take ourselves serious. <laughs> we talk about we have, we have some very dark topics, but we're going to try and have some fun with them. So, hang in there with us.
0: Yeah, and one of the ways we have fun is guess what time it is, Steve?
2: It's time for. Small town, town police, police blotter.
0: This one, I, it's, this one, I pulled. It's not so much out of a blotter, but it, it's going to be the subject of a blotter if this person follows through on this personal ad that was placed. So, Steve, this little ad, and I'm not sure where it's from. The title of it is "Pig," and it says, "I saw you at Tiki Bob's. You grabbed my butt, and I told you if you did that again, I'd kill you. You did." I need your address now. Call me here. And they gave a phone number. (laughs)
2: Jeez. What an idiot. (laughs) Now, what is pig? What does that stand for?
0: Uh, She was calling the guy a pig because the guy grabbed her butt. She said, if you do it again, I'll kill you. Well, he did it again. And now she wants his address.
2: Whoa, okay. Well, jeez. That's uh, That's a serious woman. (laughs) Don't
0: do it. Don't cross her. Hey, um, and you know, many of the times, too, we've said, you know, Many times people write headlines, it's just about marketing, it's like the one with the bank, you know, breasts may be a clue, you know, if it's a male or female robber. Well, this one was an example of poor marketing. A report of panhandling was made July 17th in the 1500 block of Northwest Gilman Boulevard, wherever that is. The subject was located on the sidewalk. His sign read, smile, it makes your butt butt tingle. Since he wasn't asking for any money, they couldn't take any enforcement action. But there he is, just standing there with the sign. Smile, it makes your butt tangle.
2: I'm laughing right now, and I'm not, I don't feel any tingles in my
0: butt.
2: Uh, that's because, but Mark, cause you're
0: clinically, cause you're, you have no sensitivity below the neck. I mean, you're just, everything's gone numb.
2: Yeah, jeez. No, not quite everything. <laughs> that's another well, story, though.
0: Here's another story. Well, speaking of another story, here is another story. Sunday, July 19th. a.m., report of a male riding a bike through the neighborhood yelling racial slurs. 8.47 a.m., officer stops the man, who says he's just trying to find his dog named Snickers.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's bullshit. (laughs) Uh, Hey, you know what? You people that throw racial slurs, knock it off. It's not fun. Knock it off. Knock it shit off. But
0: Snickers is not a racial slur. If you if you maybe if you're listening far enough away your hearings bad, it might sound like something else, but Snickers is not a racial slur.
2: Uh, Lord, I hope not. That's one of my favorite candy bars, Snickers.
0: That's right. So, Steve, now it's time for what year was it? Oh, and actually boy. we're gonna do something a little different this time.
2: Oh, geez. We're going to
0: actually randomize so that you know I'm not playing tricks on you. I have written three separate years down. Uh-huh. And I put them in random order. So you just need to pick right now one, two, or three. <laughs>
2: Oh, it's probably going to be as good as my guesses are.
0: To no, that's that's how we're going to start off. So just give me, just give me, uh, give me an order. One, two of three. Make it random, like two, three, one, two, one, three, whatever.
2: Oh, uh, two, one, three.
0: Okay, I'll give them to you in that order because I randomized them to begin with. So we're making this scientific. So Steve, this <laughs> comes to us from the Buffalo Courier out of Buffalo, New York, on January twenty fifth, the year to be determined. A cold day. And An epidemic of crime laid to shortage of men on the streets. Police force should have 100 additional men, says Commissioner Doherty. And efforts of officials to keep city clear of suspicious characters must be backed up in the morning courts. So the chief handicaps, according to Police Commissioner Doherty, to more efficiency on the part of the Buffalo Police Force these days of many robberies are the meagerness of the force and the attitude of the often condemned Mourning justices and discharging vagrants and suspicious characters, whom the police arrest. The commissioner says they need a hundred additional men to better do the work. And while the recent occurrence of crime is unfortunate, I believe the police force is on its metal. M e t t l e is on its metal, and doing its duty. So Steve, <laughs> and you've you randomized this so now you can't. If you if you lose, don't whine. You have to tell me what year was it? Was it January 25th? Eighteen ninety five, January twenty fifth, nineteen fifteen, or January twenty fifth, nineteen oh five.
2: Nineteen oh five.
0: You would be wrong. Of course. No, eighteen ninety five. Nineteen oh five. I'm just kidding you. You were right. It's nineteen oh five. I couldn't let you row. have two in a row. Woo-hoo. God,
2: two in a row. Let's Jeez. party. Ooh. <laughs> Let's Man, party. I can't go back to losing now because now I'm winning. <laughs> I, what were <laughs> what the ready? odds on that two one three shit? I didn't understand all that. Well
0: what I did was rather than me just making up something I just wrote them in a random order and then you picked a random order so it really made them random so I am not tricking you into picking one date over the other.
2: I tell you, you what, though, being suspicious in 1905 though, get your ass run out of town, won't it?
0: If you were a suspicious character boy it would, you know. And by the way too, If you've ever done those six, those photo lineups where you take six mug photos and put them into two rows like one, two, three, Mm -hmm. four, five, six. Statistically speaking, 90% of the time, they're either number two or number five. For some reason, cops put them there all the time. Number two or number five. Wow. Yep.
2: Trying to hide them in the middle.
0: So if you're not sure who did it, but you really want to screw somebody over, you got a 50-50 shot. Either pick number two or number (laughs) five.
2: (laughs) That's not true. He's making that crap
0: up. That's not true. We're making that up. Hey, anyway, so uh, we have had our jollies. Uh, Steve's had his jollies. So this is one of Steve's friends. And this is actually a really interesting episode because we will have to have him back. Aaron Graham will have to have him back and talk about his DEA career because he does have some very interesting things like going visiting the actual house where Agent Kiki Camarena was tortured and killed. I mean, just such a moving piece of what he talked to us about and what he wrote about some of the stuff he did down there in Guadalajara, I mean, some of the dangerous stuff. But the thing he wanted to talk about, Steve, which I know is near and dear to your heart too, is he now works for a large, very large pharmaceutical company. Uh, It's over in Europe, but they make a lot of cancer medications. They make a lot of other stuff. And if you thought the cartels weren't involved in stuff like this, if you thought that terrorists weren't involved in stuff like this, think again, they will counterfeit anything from kids' cough syrup to cancer medication.
2: It's it's unbelievable. And, And Uh, Aaron is a really good friend of mine. I can't wait to have him back on the show because what he, what Javier and I were doing in Colombia, he was doing in Mexico. But that's for the next story. Uh, he brought he introduced Javier and I to the counterfeit medication issues several years ago. Connected us with a group, which ultimately led to the, all three of us going on Capitol Hill twice, uh, once on the Senate side, once on the House of the Representatives side. We ended up going to the American Legislative Exchange Conference together. It was their annual conference was being held in Austin, Texas, where we were able to address legislators from all 50 states in a conference there, with the whole idea being to bring awareness to counterfeit medications coming into the United States. It's the biggest threat besides fentanyl right now going on. And fentanyl's even tied into it because, like the Mexicans, like we know, are using fentanyl in the counterfeit meds they're sending up. So... uh, you, well, I you don't know, want to... Steve,
0: the one – well, the one thing on that, though too, is people – it's not just counterfeiting medications that can hurt you or kill you. Some of these might not even hurt you or kill you, but they're counterfeiting them and selling them for big prices. You're not getting any therapeutic benefit out right. of it, and the money, as you will find out, goes to fund the cartels. It goes to fund terrorism. I mean you might think it's just counterfeit meds, and I, you will hear me actually ask uh, Aaron a question. So if I'm a cop on the street, why should I care? And Aaron does a great job of answering, this is why you ought to care.
2: Right. And this is, you know, this is, uh, we talked about this one other time before, and we did a, a uh, recorded presentation on this with in conjunction with Aaron. This is an opportunity to pr- to commit the perfect murder, whether it's intended or not. Because if you so say I've got cancer, in Morgan, and I can't afford my cancer meds because they are outrageously expensive, and so I start buying counterfeits. I take those, well, I eventually die from cancer, but I died because I didn't have the active ingredient from the, max, from the cancer medications that I needed. So the person that was given those to me has actually committed a murder, and he'll never be investigated because everybody will just say, oh, Murph died of cancer. We all knew he had cancer. This, is, this can affect everybody, anybody and everybody around the world, not just here in the United States. So this is one of the, I think this is one of the most important uh, interviews we've ever done.
0: Well, and the only way to hear about the interview is for me to ask you, Murph. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the game of crimes?
2: All right, everyone, get in, sit down, shut up, hold on, and bring on our good friend, Aaron Graham.
0: Well, yeah, I stand corrected. I, I didn't think Murph had more than one friend, but apparently, Aaron is that guy. So, Aaron, well, Aaron, buddy, welcome to the world famous Game of Crimes
1: podcast. Thanks, guys.
2: Hey, I got one thing for both of you. Go, yeah, whatever. Dogs. Go, uh, Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> Forty years later, and they win one. Okay, and
2: just so y'all know, the new champions, the national champions of college football. I broke out my old Georgia sweatshirt, and I'm wearing it so both of these jerks can watch me the whole time on camera. You can't see it, but they can. No
0: worries, Murph. Hey, what what is the temperature down in the uh, Florida, you traitorous bastard? Oh, warm what is it already. Right now? It's coming off here shortly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. It's staying on. You want to you run with that? We'll stay with that. So anyway. Hey, but Aaron, before we forget about you, let's get to you. Hey, man, so... Uh, Here's the fun part. You know, you got a lot of great stories, and we're actually going to take people on a journey someplace they didn't think about, and it's the world of counterfeit medication. I mean, there's some just... I learned a lot of stuff just from our pre-call, but as we always do with everybody, let's find out, why in the hell did you get into law enforcement? I mean, what were you arrested as a ute? Did you fracture some laws? I mean, what was your glide path you know, through high school, what'd you do after high school, you know, to get into this thing we call the profession of law enforcement?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a weird glide path for sure. I uh, was sure I wanted to...
0: I don't ask anything but good questions. I mean, that's redundant, oh. but go ahead,
2: Phil. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hey, Aaron,
1: this shit doesn't get any easier. He's going to be How like this say, the whole time. That's not what you said, Steve. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're so uh, born and raised in San Diego. My uh, grandfather was a math teacher. I was a pretty good math student. I wanted to coach uh, high school football. So I thought, well, I'll major in math, get a job, coach football. And uh, I ended up coaching college football for a couple of years, but it really wasn't the ideal choice for me. So- What college? Uh, University of California at Berkeley. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. Are, they, are they division one? <laughs> wow. Does it get colder <laughs> as this interview goes on? They've got their own division, don't they? <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's the nuclear free
0: zone division out there next.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly right. Uh, yeah. So then, you know, I found that a lot of my, my friends that had played football with me in college had become policemen and they really enjoyed it. And they talked about, look, you're on a team, which is a big deal for athletes and you're responsible for yourself and you can self-initiate and you can make a difference in the world, all of which made sense to me. And uh, so I started out at San Diego PD and spent two years there in patrolling and really, it was it was um, thought-provoking every day. You could really make a difference, but you could also see stuff that you never in your life imagined. Uh, heartbreaking stuff, heart-wrenching stuff, and then you'd do something good, and that was touching. But it seemed like every time I turned around, Morgan, the, what I thought was a root cause of what was happening was substance abuse. Drugs were everywhere, and we were seeing them everywhere, and it looked,
0: what was the most popular one you saw during the time you were there?
1: You know what was really on fire at the time was PCP down in the, the Logan Heights area, Barrio Logan, and it was scary, you know. Well, I'm, Aaron,
0: tell people, I mean, we've all dealt with folks that have been, you know, um, they're on PCP. I mean, th- th- those are the infamous videos you see where they strip down, they're naked because it's just, you know, they're it's really getting to them. So, you know. Give us an idea of what PCP was actually doing to some. Yeah, folks. it
1: was frightening. Uh, we would we would see these guys, and it was very pretty typical uh, behavior. Very rigid, stiff. You would smell ether on their breath. You'd ask them a question, and they wouldn't answer. You'd ask two or three more questions. One of the uh, kind of interesting, humorous things that we saw, although nothing was really funny in the moment, but you might ask three or four or five questions, and then they would. An- the first time they'd speak, they'd answer the first question, but it might be a minute later, 90 seconds later. And then they would answer the questions in sequence that you had asked them, but they were delayed. And and it was all well and good, but at some point under the influence of PCP because they were a danger to themselves, was a crime. So they had to go to jail. And the minute they got irritated, they had superhuman strength. And in addition to the strength, they had superhuman pain tolerance. So you couldn't really use typical law enforcement approved uh, techniques to get them under control. And so- the PCP, you know, that's an animal tranquilizer, right? Right. That's right. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> it, it was amazing. And so, you know, of course, we want to be compliant with the law and use uh, authorized police techniques for restraint. But sometimes it would take five, six, seven of us to get a guy in handcuffs who was five foot eight, 140 pounds. And, in the process of those tussles, you never know when they might grab your gun or bash your head against the sidewalk or a curb. And so while you want to protect them from themselves, you want to make sure you protect yourself as well. So it was a frightening time. And, uh, and of course, the people selling PCP weren't just selling drugs. This, this uh, product oftentimes where we saw it was liquid. And they would soak Sherman cigarettes in the liquid and then sell those cigarettes that way. But they would also carry the liquid when they're selling it. And occasionally on a pursuit, they would run around a corner, and as you came around the corner, they would throw it on you. And so it would actually permeate your skin through your pores, through your eyes, and then you're impaired. And the long-term consequences of impairment from PCP was not yet determined. So you could be off the road until a physician could give you clearance to go back to work. So there there was a lot of uh, complications and complexities to dealing with that medicine, or having that, that illicit drug.
2: Well, if that happened, did did you have superhuman strength then?
1: I did not then. I, of course, you know, I do now, but no, not then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I was bit by a spider. That happened to me too. You know, I, yeah, but hey, but fen cycling, But but that was the thing too. Uh, Wasn't the term for that being dusted?
1: Well, they they called it angel dust. Was one of the other words uh, that are names. And that was when it was in a powder form. So the powder form, they would sprinkle on a, either a marijuana cigarette or a regular cigarette, and the sherms were typically dipped in the liquid.
0: And I will tell you, there are stories, too. I mean, you'll, you'll hear stories about this, about some of these people who are just whacked out on PCP. Not only superhuman strength, but they feel no pain. So they would get into lethal force confrontations. They'd be shot. And it's like it would have no effect on them. I mean, they just kept... one. One was a military. I remember a military situation... Um, guy was, uh, the, I think the Marines, and it may have been in San Diego or there. area. They shot him like eight times with the 45. Didn't stop.
1: Dang. You know, I was in a, a, fast forward, I was doing an undercover deal in the mission district in San Francisco one day. And as I pulled up, my surveillance units were with me. And all of a sudden we saw cop cars flying around everywhere. We thought, what the heck is going on? So as we started to kind of reconnoiter our situation and try to maybe back out, I looked up, and there was a naked guy on a a wooden telephone pole at the top. And the cops were ordering him to come down. And so he slid down. Oh! Yeah. And he was on PCP. Now, you can imagine there probably was some pain involved in that little... Power. Not at
0: that point, but once you got off a of PCP, probably. Zoned. I suspect.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that was an example of where you'd see that pain tolerance beyond anything that was human.
0: And that's what made it so tough to arrest those folks. I, I didn't have that much dealing with PCP, but you knew it when you dealt with somebody because it was like nothing you tried. Like you said, you wanted to use lawful techniques, pressure point control technique, pain, pain compliance techniques didn't even work. There was nothing you could do that would make them want to submit. It just, you needed a bunch of people. To just force their hands behind their back and get them handcuffed.
1: Exactly right. It was body weight, right? If we could get five or six guys and get on top of them, get them, and you know, you didn't want to be, have your knee on the back, on their back and and compress their lungs and cause any issues. You wanted them to go to jail because they were going to sober up. And I just, I, I felt like, and I know Steve and I've had this conversation and I'm sure you did the same thing, Morgan. I treated every suspect like they were my brother, right? We're going to get through this. We're going to get you in custody. we are gonna get you in front of a trial. And we're going to treat you humanely and respectfully the whole process. And so I always wanted to keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, they would get what they would call positional asphyxiation. You might arrest them, set them on their side, right? So you had to be very careful about what you did with them. But so that was now at that time down there, I had a friend of mine. Did you ever run into Jack Scanlon when he was down there in San Diego?
1: I did. He was ahead of me, but yes.
0: Yeah, Jack ended up uh, getting a cushy job. He retired as an assistant chief and went over to Coronado Island after they built that huge bridge over there, which we'll talk about Coronado Island uh, here in a little bit. But um, how long? So, did you work the street the whole time? Is that what you did?
1: Yep, I was in patrol mostly at a Central Command down down at uh, downtown. Although it was interesting, you know, I, I grew up in San Diego, but about uh, 20 minutes uh, east of the of the beach of downtown. And my first assignment as a as an FTO. Uh, phase trainee was at the San Isidro Port of Entry at our at our uh, our office down there. And it was a graveyard, like that's where all first phase, it seems like, uh, trainees go. And, you know, I was second or third night, and we got a call first thing in the morning, five o'clock, sun was coming up, uh, report to the soccer fields, which is kind of a demarcation between Tijuana and San Diego, a little canyon, and you could see the, the people playing soccer on the other side of the border. And uh, so they said, report to the soccer field. So my training officer, Miguel Pinalosa says, get ready, kid. This is not going to be good. And I said, what's going on? He said, you'll see when we get there. So we get up there and there were uh, two women crying, beaten, had been raped. Three men had been shot. And uh, it was the first time I saw the consequences of illegal immigration at the border like that, where the, it was a real trend, uh, where the coyotes would bring them across the border rape the women in front of the men, shoot the men, keep the money, and go back to Mexico. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was born and raised in a blue-collar family. My dad, mom and dad both worked, and we put ourselves through school, and we just didn't see people treat others that way. And it was it was devastating. I'm not going to lie. I still, you know, remember some of those. It was two or three times a week. That's how I started my morning at the end of my shift was reporting to the soccer fields and seeing that kind of inhumane behavior. Carnage.
2: That's unbelievable.
1: Now, what year was this? Uh, 83 to 85.
0: So um, when you went through the academy that was San Diego, do they have their own academy?
1: It was called the Regional Academy, and it was at Miramar Junior College, Community College, and it was uh, all of the departments for San Diego County could send candidates there. It was mostly the sheriff's office and San Diego PD, and then a few smaller departments. And, uh, and then you could go there as an open enrollee to go through the program and they get hired afterwards.
0: Yeah, that that's kind of unusual because a, a lot of people don't realize this. One of our other guests uh, that we've talked with, uh, and I'm not sure which order the episodes will come out when we talk with Jared Reston, he put himself through post down in Florida, you know, paid the money, go through the college, you know, and then look for a job. So, did you have a, did you, now did you have a, were you hired by San Diego PD and then sent to the college or did you uh, put yourself through and then get hired?
1: No, I didn't even understand the process of putting yourself through. Uh, so when I got hired by the PD, they hired me and then sent me through when I was part of the, that particular class.
0: Yeah. You seem like you're a fairly, fairly intelligent guy, though. How did you miss that part of it? Like, uh...
1: <laughs> You know, it's like many surgeries I had, and, and Steve's had uh, some of the same surgeries. I just don't ask questions about stuff I don't need to know. That's right. like, <laughs> My brain's not that big, so I can only retain so much. <laughs> so I ask what I have to know, and then I go. Yeah.
0: It's called the bookshelf effect. My mind the same way. It only holds so many book, books on there. You put one <laughs> book off, another one falls off. I only got so much room to hold books. So Precisely. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to move on from San Diego PD? Because i tell you, the other thing too is it was tough to leave that too, because what, it's 80 degrees all the time. Oh, by the way, I have to ask you, did you ever meet Ron Burgundy?
1: No, no. Uh, our paths crossed a few times. And I saw him on TV with Steve Murphy one time, but I didn't know him. <laughs>
0: Who? <laughs> oh, man. You haven't watched Anchor Man, Ron Burgundy? No. Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> don't, do, don't put a question mark there. He'll read anything. Steve, I'm sorry. We're way ahead of you on this one, aren't we, Erin?
2: I'm sorry. You woke me up. Yes. I was, I was dozing off there. This interesting story. <laughs> <sighs> the sweatshirt's got you sweating. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 Hey, well, uh, but so you were on. Wh- what point did you decide that? Uh, did you Where were you between uh, San Diego and DEA? Did you go from the PD to DEA?
1: I did. You know, I was in the gym one day and a guy comes up and says, hey, I worked at a gym out in the East County called Valley Barbell. It was 24 hours a day and it was about half cops and half criminals. The Hells Angels chapter was out there, bunch of convicted felons, all the cops and firemen. Everybody got along great. One day a guy comes up and says, hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, oh, I guess we're standing in the gym together, four in the morning. He says, I'm with DEA. I think I know that you're with the PD. I think you'd be great at DEA. He says, why? I just see how you get along with that convicted bank robber and that convicted homicide suspect and that the actual president of the Hells Angels at the time was in there. And uh, he says, you ever thought about working for DEA? I said, I don't really know a lot about DEA. Haven't really thought about it. He says, well, let's have lunch. So uh, we met at El Torito and he told me why I thought I should, you know, why he thought I should do it. And it turns out a friend of my father's had told my dad that I had to do it as well. I'm like, well, if you guys, I'm sure you're both wrong, but let's talk about it. And uh, it was awesome. And they told me what we could do, what I could do. And it, and it was really, you know, Morgan, at the time, it was about the same time I realized that substance abuse and, and addiction seemed to be the, you know, root cause of a lot of stuff I was seeing. So it made sense uh, at the time. And so I applied and, and uh, got hired in, in the fall of uh, 1984.
0: So I have to ask you, when you said you were – some of them down there were convicted felons and firefighters, were they the same people or were the firefighters not the <laughs> – well, firefighters. We have to so. doggone firefighters. Yeah, they,
1: they moonlight. Yeah, them. I'm just not going there with the firefighters. <laughs> They're in much better shape than any of us. So I'm just well, leaving it at they
0: have all the time in the world to work out and
1: eat food and, you know, <laughs>
0: yep. do all that good stuff. But, hey, let's go back to Hell's Angels. Do you remember the guy's name that was the president?
1: No, I don't. I, I don't remember. I did meet uh, the founder of the Angels uh, some years later in San Francisco. And and uh, at the of the Oakland chapter, Dutch Schultz, and uh, I didn't know them, but picture this: I was going to Oakland one day when I was with uh, uh, DEA in San Francisco, and I was going to the clubhouse to meet with a guy who wanted he was um, he wanted to buy some some coke. So we're going to do a reverse undercover. I go over, and he's at He's got access to some pretty cool cars. So we're going to trade cars for dope. So I go to meet with him at St. Patrick's Day, and. I get on these goofy green pants and I pop out of my car and this guy's showing me this uh, Maserati with the uh, you know Dijon mustard on the front in the console, you know, being really cool. Next thing I look up and here's Dutch Schultz, president of the Oakland chapter, riding his Harley down this. I walk to the clubhouse and we we're right outside. He stops, looks at me, and I think this can't go well. Like he's gonna know. He's like, "Dude, cool pants," <laughs> and he high fives me and drives on like. Whew. <laughs> That's Shultz. Okay, cool pants. That's your you new, wore new name. Green pants. That's your new
2: name. Cool pants. No, it was St. Patrick's Day, dude. <laughs>
0: cool pants. Yeah. Instead of cool hand, Luke, we'll call you Cool Pants, Aaron. All right. Yeah. Okay. Hey, but um, but you get on DEA, so that you said that was nineteen eighty four. So you'd already had a couple years under your belt. Uh, what was that like? Um, Going from the local PD now to DEA, you know, tell us, kind of walk us through going through the academy and stuff and up towards, you know, where you got your first post at. And by the way, throw in how you learned Spanish.
1: Well, let's start with Spanish since that was when I was a, an infant. At the Back in the day, they had a program called the Bracero Program, and it was a work program where uh, you could come across the border from Mexico, work in the United States with a worker permit. Both my parents were, were working so they could buy their first home. And um, so they had to find somebody to to watch their first kid and then their second kid and then their third kid. while my mom and dad both worked. So they hired this woman and on Sunday nights she'd come across the border, take the bus up to El Cajon, where I grew up, and they'd pick her up and she had her own bedroom. All three of us were in the same room, the boys. By the time, I was the only one and so she would come on Sunday nights and her English wasn't great. And my parents' Spanish wasn't great. But I was with Maria from time I woke up till 5 o'clock every day, five days a week. So if I wanted something to eat, drink, or get out of a dirty diaper, I better learn how to speak Spanish. And, you know, she was like having your grandma. It was awesome. And uh, so by the time I was four or five, I was a Spanish speaker. I remember my, my own grandmother saying to me one time, she had to learn Spanish because if I was asking for galletas or agua or hugo, she had to know what I was saying <laughs> because I was unknowingly speaking both languages at the same time. And I think most people know that's the when you teach a language, right? When the child's small, the brain is absorbing everything. And so I was very blessed that my parents thought that was important. My parents continued to stress the, uh, you know, learning Spanish. And I actually had a fifth and sixth grade teachers who, you know, impressed that upon us too. I was very fortunate in my, I mean, I didn't learn anything, but people kept trying to teach me. And in fifth and sixth grade, we had teachers who really thought it was important we understand Spanish, speak Spanish. That was many years ago. We studied the Aztec, Inca, and Mayan civilizations. And, you know, it was just we were fortunate. And I always thought it was great, and so I kept working on it. And uh, I think it probably contributed to me getting hired by DEA. I was a a Spanish speaker. I had a degree in finance. And uh, so I think it probably helped. And so to your point, so I applied to DEA in I think the summer of 84. Got notified in November uh, of 84 I'd been hired. I was going to start the academy in February of 85.
0: Man, that was quick. Who did who did you pay off or who did you have pictures on to get through that fast?
1: I'm just going to plead the fifth and keep talking.
2: <laughs> hey, you know what? Talking about your grandmother not being able to understand your Spanish, there's a lot of things you say to me in English that I don't understand. So I, I feel <laughs> for that lady.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if that's because I talk fast or your ears are flapping, but there's a lot of things you say in English I don't understand. Well, so. no, I
0: just tell Murph I don't talk fast. You just listen slow. I mean, that's that southern, that's that southern thing, man. We're fine. What do you mean? What do you mean? Bulldogs you got go a bulldogs. Mile, boy. Bulldogs go, go dogs. dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but guess what? Alabama's already consensus number one for next year already. So there you go.
2: Sherry Foster says hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll
0: talk about her later. But back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So we're in. So. When you got to the academy, did you have to take a, you'd already spoke, like you said, you was good that you were fluent in Spanish. Did you have to take a proficiency test at the academy, or did that come later for them to determine what's your level?
1: Yeah, so I did not, uh, we didn't have to have any proficiency exams going to the academy for Spanish because it wasn't really required. However, what was required, as, and we didn't anticipate this, was as many people from who know the history of DEA, and, and really, if anybody, for the people who watch Narcos on Netflix that you know, show that really I think uh, escalated the awareness about DEA and especially the great work that Stephen Javi did. Um, you know, the, the 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 show starts out with the kidnapping of Kiki Camarena, DEA agent uh, Enrique Camarena, and how that really changed how the world saw drug trafficking and the cartels behaved and what have you. And well, that happened just before I started the academy. And Kiki was from Imperial Valley near San Diego. Many of the agents that I started working with in San Diego were friends of Kiki's. And so that was quite a, you know, welcome to DEA moment. And it changed my my academy experience as well significantly. I got there and there were threats out there going to kidnap agents, kill agents. When we did PT, we couldn't run off campus unless we had armed escorts. And uh, it really changed the way we viewed uh, what we were doing and how serious it was, what the real risks were. And unfortunately, created. my father had passed away before that time. And uh, so, I, you know, my mom, she didn't really know what I was doing. But the news about Kiki was so uh, omnipresent, and especially if you were in San Diego. And uh, so that was not good. I had to keep assuring my mom that it wasn't going to be a problem and that we were safe and we were smart and we were well-trained. It wouldn't happen again. Of course, we all know it those kind of things continue to happen.
0: Well, hold hold on there for a sec, because you said it wouldn't happen again, but then it actually, it actually did a few months after that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it uh, I graduated the academy, went to San Francisco, and then I was selected to go to uh, individual terrorist awareness training in, in, at the federal law enforcement training center being taught by the Special Forces, and it was for agents either being uh, assigned to high-risk locations or in high-risk assignments, and I was on the SWAT team working undercover. So I got nominated to go to this five-day school, and I met an agent named Victor Cortez, who remains a friend to this day, and Victor knew Kiki quite well, and uh, and I met Tom Gomez, who remains a a mentor and and friend to this day. So we were working out one day after class, and and both of them were were competitive powerlifters, and Victor says, you know, it just And it was hard to talk about for some of those guys who knew Kiki well, because he apparently was a super personable guy. Everybody liked him. Victor says, but, you know, it's not going to happen again. And that's, I think, we need to keep in mind that we need to be safe. We need to be aware. We need to pay attention. But that's not going to happen again, because the pressure that was put on the government and the traffickers and others, it's not going to happen again. And not long after that, Victor transferred to Guadalupe volunteered. And he was kidnapped by the state police, tortured for, I think, eight hours. Uh, at the state police headquarters. And fortunately, you know, after Kiki, we were we paid much closer attention to where our agents were, especially in that city, and I'm sure in, in, in Bogota, even stricter. So immediately the agents at Post went out looking for him and found him being drugged out the back door of the state uh, judicial police building where they've been torturing him. And who knows what uh, laid in uh, store for him after that. But he was rescued and, and transferred back to the United States, uh, got a job in international training. And uh, I had a chance to call him and you know check in on him like we do with all our brothers, see how he was doing. And uh, of course, that's when he gave me my first warning: do not go to Guadalajara. It's too dangerous. It doesn't make sense. Uh, don't do it. So, of course, you know what I did. I volunteered for assignment to Guadalajara because yeah, we're going to talk about
0: that. Yeah, you know, uh, don't go there. It's dangerous. You know, so what do you do? You volun you vol you, you didn't go because you were told to go. You volunteered to go. So we're going to get to that in a second.
2: You you look at at uh, Aaron here. He's as gringo looking as I am. <laughs> what the hell's wrong with that? Yeah, us? it was pretty clear who we were. Right? <laughs> kind of stuck out like sore thumbs.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to that though. I mean, how the hell? I, I mean that that's the equivalent of saying like I'm in Virginia. The next thing our state police out here would go kidnap another law enforcement officer and torture them for eight hours. I mean, what were the conditions on the ground at that time that allowed the state police, of, of all people, the state police, to kidnap an American agent just not too long after Kiki and think that they could get away with this?
1: You know, the reality is, uh, the the uh, what at the time was the, the DFS, which was the CIA in Mexico, they were involved in the kidnapping, torture, and murder of Kiki. Um, agents from the from the Policía Federal, the feds, actually grabbed Kiki and took him to the location where he was tortured and murdered. And none of them had gone to jail yet. So I think there was some, and it breaks my heart to say this out loud, I grew up on the border. I love Mexico. It's my second country. I love the people of Mexico. But you know, there's corruption everywhere. We have it as well, as both of you know. We have our own corrupt police officers and federal agents. And so there was an element that was involved in both those incidents. And I think the other thing was if there's no deterrent, right, if nothing bad happened or consequence to the guys who did it, they presume minimally they wouldn't be arrested. And I have to think that's what led the state police to think they could get away with it. And at the same time, you know, those were our partners, the federal police, the military, the police.
0: Yeah, you were damned if you did and damned if you didn't. You had to work with them.
1: We weren't getting anything done by ourselves. We didn't have, you know, arrest authority and didn't technically have permission to have weapons in country. So those were our partners.
0: I like the way you said technically.
1: That, that's a good point.
2: You guys had
1: no diplomatic community. You had no coverage for that, there, right? That's right. Interestingly, the agents in the Mexico City office had diplomatic uh, visas and carnets. We, everybody else had nothing. Now, nobody's being kidnapped in Mexico City, but in Guadalajara, Hermosillo, Sinaloa, um, Monterrey, where people were being kidnapped, things were happening. Oh, there's a a couple of HSI agents got shot up in Nueva León and one was killed. None of us had had immunity, none of us had protection. So we're even more uh, at risk. To this day, has anything changed? I don't know. You know, it's a good question, but I'm sure it was a State Department thing. Um, You know, it's always a challenge, DEA and State Department.
0: Well, they'd have to also get permission from Mexico to allow you to enter the country with a diplomatic visa.
2: Well, if I remember when we talked to Paul Crane and Abe Perez, I I don't think those guys have diplomatic immunity and I don't think they're authorized to carry weapons in Mexico, of all places in Mexico.
0: Yeah, that was the discussion we had with them, And it's kind of like you had it, I had it, um, you know, and it's like of all places, Mexico on our southern border with everything going on, why these folks didn't have at a minimum diplomatic uh, passports and visas, at least to protect them.
2: Yeah, it was like going to Afghanistan. I, I did a TDY in Afghanistan, and and as soon as you arrived at the airport, agents are waiting for you. They escort you out to the car, and the first thing you do is give you a handgun.
1: Yeah, well, we had weapons in Mexico. I remember the, before I went down uh, to Guadalajara with my wife, and Tom Gomez was the acting rack in our office, and he called and said, dude, bring every gun you got. I said, so you're on the phone, right? He says, yep, I want everybody to know you're coming to the country fully armed. And if it goes bad, be prepared for it. I'm like, oh, my God, I got my wife who's from a small town in Minnesota, and I'm driving through the center of Mexico. And it was part of the what I call the welcome to Guadalajara experience.
0: Well, you know, the first rule of a gunfight, bring lots of guns. Second rule, bring friends with lots of guns. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the first thing. Hey, go back, though, because we have kind of a rule on the show. Uh, you said HSI and you said rack. And Steve said TDY. So we're going to – but we got to just explain. So it wasn't called HSI back in the day because that was – that's only after nine eleven that it was called HSI.
1: Right. It was called Customs, right? And so it was the Customs agents uh, who this happened to and now referred to as Homeland Security Investigations. Mm-hmm. And then Iraq is – And Iraq is the resident agent in charge. So there's a country attaché. He's the head guy at the main office in a country typically located at the embassy. And then we had smaller offices at U.S. consulate uh, locations in, as I said, Guadalajara, Mazatlan, Hermosillo, and Monterey, and they have a resident agent in charge, and that's the senior agent responsible at that location.
0: And what distinguishes between a RAC and a special agent in charge?
1: Well, special agent in charge is a domestic term, as a rule, and the uh, country attache is the special agent in charge, the senior person at the largest office in country. Okay, and then Steve, TDY?
2: that is a temporary duty assignment TDY so when you're you're not in your permanent office you're going out somewhere that's a TDY
0: and the one rule about TDY is what happens on TDY
2: stays on TDY
0: there we go i didn't have to complete it. yeah what happens in Vegas too not not with youtube anymore let me tell you it doesn't stay in vegas so but uh, True. back to our regularly scheduled podcast so aaron um but but again i'm just flummoxed by who do you think the state police were acting on the orders of? Was this something to fulfill their own needs, or was this something tied into the cartels? Did they have that kind of influence that they could dictate to the state police and to the DFS? Here's here's what you guys are going to do.
1: You know, virtually every public servant in Mexico, uh, from my experience, is at risk of being dictated to by the traffickers. And as Stephen Harvey used to have in some of their... Um, their uh, narco stuff, their hats and their shirts and other things, plato plomo. So plato plomo is a very common term in Mexico. It means silver or lead. So we would call the honeymoon phase when a new comandante would come to your area. And within that first week, there was the honeymoon phase where they might work with you at DEA. But at some point thereafter, the, the main traffickers in the area would come to the comandante, send a representative, bring a bag of money and just say directly to the, to the comandante plato plomo, would you like this money? We'd like to give it to you as a gift, as a welcome to our city gift. Or, you know, we'll show you pictures of your kids and wife and where they go to school and where they work and where you live, and that won't end uh, quite as well for you. So, again, I'm not apologizing for, for them being corrupt. I don't have Stockholm Syndrome, which, you know, agents like Steve and I are often accused of having because we work closely with our local counterparts. But, you know, they wanted to be a policeman. That's why they went into law enforcement. And they end up in a situation that... It's incredibly hard, and I had a number of really good friends who were comandantes who were murdered by the traffickers at some point. So it, it doesn't end well, and it's a it's a travesty, honestly.
0: You know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I didn't spend near the time down in Colombia. you know, that Steve and Javi did, obviously, but just working on Plan Colombia. But their big thing, I remember talking to somebody one day. They said, look, you got people come up to you. They want information out of a system. They want to know something. They go, hey, look, here's $20,000, which is more than these folks would probably make in five years, or we're going to kill your whole family. I mean, what kind of a – how do you deal with something like that? And then if you go report it, guess what? You're reporting it maybe to people who are going to pipeline it right back to the people that wanted to pay you the money, and now you're really screwed.
1: And that's well understood throughout the country. One day I was uh, going down to the embassy in Mexico City, so I flew from – well, I in Mexico City, took a cab. To the embassy, and we were talking. And the guy, I said, "Can you take me to the embassy?" And he says, "Yeah." What do you do? And of course, I gave him the typical cover story. I was an assistant attaché to the to the consul general. He said, "Oh, yeah, okay." So, and then when you're working for DEA, you know, <laughs> it was pretty clear I wasn't a State Department official. And uh, I said, "Okay, so since we're there, tell me what you think about the the drug problem here, and you know how prevalent is it, and how do you view it as somebody who's working for a living and what have you." And he said, "Well, first of all, the problems in the United States." And we're stuck between the source country and the consumer country. And they were pretty clear and happy to point that out to us. And, and if you had any shame or humility or honesty about you, you'd say, yeah, that's a problem. And we that's why we have a demand reduction program and we want to educate people what have you. But uh, I said, OK, so I accept that. And I said, but how do you avoid it or what do you do? He says, well, I avoid it because they haven't approached me yet. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, if I had, a, you know, 100 hectares of, of, of land and I was growing beans or, or corn or whatever, and, and somebody came and said, we well, want you to grow marijuana here, I would grow marijuana. Because if I said no, they'd kill me right in front of my family, then they'd plant the marijuana on my farm. So, you know, it was very candid, a conversation. And, and again, it breaks your heart. because There's these people that have families and are working every day and trying to make a difference. But it's not about becoming corrupt. It's about wanting to survive
2: whatever happened? do you know what happened to the uh, people that were accused of kidnapping Victor?
1: No, I don't know what happened there. Uh, You know, he was whisked out of the country, and I don't know, you know, technically, and you probably had the same thing in Colombia, our official agency that we worked with was the Mexican Federal Judicial Police. We weren't supposed to necessarily work with the army, we weren't supposed to work with the state or city, but it wasn't uncommon to, to run into these guys wherever. And then a state police officer, I, I got some dirt for you on Comunidad or the jefe grupo of the feds. And so then they became your informant. So you did work with them and you just try to keep an arm's length distance, not be caught with them in public, what have you. But you had to take information from wherever you could get it. But we did not do a lot of work, at least during my era with the state police because of the Victor incident. So I don't I don't we didn't have any interaction with them, let alone pursue anybody responsible for Victor's kidnapping when I was there.
2: Well, we've we've talked to Victor about potentially coming on the show. He's not ready yet, but you know, hopefully in the future we'll have him on here, and you know, the, all our players can hear from him what really happened down
1: there that day. Yeah, he, I'm sure he'd be a great
2: guest.
0: Hey, Aaron, how do you balance that—the need, the you know, you, to meet the needs of the operation and the mission—and you've got to do stuff, but at the same time, knowing you're walking into a, a, a you know, uh, the lion's den or the pit of vipers. You know, pick your favorite analogy. It's like, you know, these, you know, that the minute you share information with them or do something, it's going to get leaked. It's going to go. So, how do you, how do you actually become effective down there, knowing that everybody you're working with—not everybody, I should say. Because, again, we're the same way. We're not picking on the country or the good people of the country, but there there is a culture of corruption that just permeates everything, and it is so difficult to deal with. How did you deal with that culture of corruption, especially in law enforcement, and still meet the mission?
1: You know, it's a really great question nobody's ever asked me, but I think— You know, I was raised in that culture, and and I understood the concept of the abrazo and being thoughtful. And and my parents were really strict about being nice to everybody and, you know, establishing that relationship based on trust Uh, in the beginning. Everybody gets a chance to betray your trust, but if you start there. And I just found that the vast majority of the police officers I met wanted to be friends, wanted to be policemen, wanted to do the right thing. And so you went there with that in mind. You know, you didn't give out your location or anything that they— you know, shouldn't know or that could compromise your safety or, or your family's safety. On the other hand, look, they had wiretaps on your home phone. They had your your wife's picture and your picture based on your application for, for passports for Mexico. So they knew everything about you. And so at some point, you know what, you just n- never closed both eyes. You worked really hard. You let them know occasionally you knew what you knew. And honestly, there were times where I said, look, if if you know something that could result in either me or my wife or that subsequently my infant son being kidnapped or hurt, let me know, please. And I'll do the same for you. What uh, is que abrazo? un abrazo is a, a, a hug. So when you see in the Latin culture, men will shake hands, hug, slap each other in the back three times, then separate and shake hands again. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I was born in 1958, so we're all about the same age, 47. And
0: (laughs) I see math (laughs) was not one of your strong. You said you got a business degree.
1: I had a a minor in math. So, see, I didn't have a major. If I had a major, I'd probably done math there. So, um, but. You know, going down, to, we didn't hug a lot. It was just not in our culture at the time. And and uh, I'm sure Steve saw it as well in Colombia. When you get to Mexico, everybody's hugging. And men, women, animals, and it was very customary. And now— That sounds like uh, Tennessee,
0: and, too, and parts of West Virginia, hugging
1: animals. Right, Steve? Well, be careful. Javier told me you can be from West Virginia, and if, you're, if, if you get divorced, you're still cousins. Right. And so that's a good thing. Of course.
2: <laughs> Where's the question
1: in that? <laughs>
0: Aaron, you're my man. You're my kind of guy, dude. Finally, two
2: on one. Hey, all I yeah. can say, all I can say is go dogs.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you keep saying it. I hear you. And I'll keep that as you get out. Go ahead. <laughs> for the <Right> next year. <laughs> so, but you know what, that was the kind of uh, gesture of affection and respect. And so, you know, every meeting would start with that. And, and, you know, you take these guys in your confidence, you hope they do the same. And, there were many instances where the comandante would, more than once, call me for a meeting at Sanborn's. Uh, the locals, like at Denny's, they have a, a confectionery shop and a pharmacy and a big restaurant, and he would ask me to meet there and don't bring anybody with me. And he would want to tell me what his personal problems were, his professional problems were. And he'd have the restaurant shut down. He'd have his, his guards out front with AK-47s, and he'd want to say, I got these threats, I got these issues, can you guys help me with X, Y, Z? And he'd always remind me, you know, I'll never let you get hurt. If I find out they're coming for you, I'll tell you, I'll warn you to get out of the country. I'll never let you get hurt." And I I believed them. I mean, you know, I could have got hurt anyways, but, you know, I just feel like, and you know, establishing rapport and friendships and relationships and trust, I don't think that's an innate skill. I think, I mean, excuse me, I think it is an innate skill. I don't think you learn it. Either you know when you talk to somebody, you trust them or don't trust them, you can establish rapport. And uh, I don't know, I felt like we had good relationships. But again, you don't know. If somebody told them, look, here's $100,000, pick up Graham today, or we're going to shoot you in the head, or here's your wife at, at the beauty salon, they're going to pick you up. So you knew, to your point, Morgan, that was always a risk. No matter, even if they liked you and wanted to like you, there was always a risk that you were going down because the orders came from on high.
0: It had to be so fatiguing to stay on high alert all the time. I mean, you're you're watching your six all the time, you're um, you know, they would go through like, in, uh, you know, streets sur- the street survival course that they would teach, you know, they would talk about the different things like code green, code yellow, code orange, but it's like being aware all the time. That's one thing. But hypervigilance is is tiring. I mean, you had to, walking even from your car, you know, from the garage to the office or the office to go get a cup of coffee, I mean, your head had to be on a swivel the whole time. How did you just not wear out from fatigue?
1: You know, I heard Steve talking during the interview with Connie about um, compartmentalizing. And you kind of had to do that and you had to force yourself to do it. But needless to say, you know, you'd be at the gigante supermarket and you'd see a trafficker and you had to know, okay, there's a trafficker. Tell your wife, okay, I guess a trafficker. He may or may not know me, but I know who he is. And (laughs) you just keep shopping because you can't surrender. You can't go lay underneath the bed. You might as well go home then. But it was exhausting. I I, I remember being really tired and not really knowing why. And I'm a guy who gets up at 4 in the morning, go to the gym, work out, and that's how I start my day. So it wasn't that, because I'd always done that. And it wasn't until sometime later I realized it's because I'm always paying attention to what's going on around me. Walk out of the office, walk out of the house, walk out of the grocery store. And then we had some threats, and I got to get my wife and child to the airport. And then I got to make sure they don't get picked up. And there were times where... You know, we would evacuate the wives and then we'd stay at post and we'd have to double up. And, you know, I'd be living with Jose Baisa and uh, David, would be living with Gilbert and the wives would be off post. And I remember going jogging with Tom Gomez one time, carrying guns with a handkerchief around him. We had to get out of the house and exercise. So we're running on the streets of I had it with a gun around because the threat was they were going to kidnap us. And it was, to your point, it was exhausting.
2: You know what? That uh, when, I, when I came out of Columbia, I got stationed in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'd been there for a little while, and I got a call from a, a North Carolina State Bureau agent who was working on his master's degree or his doctorate, I'm not sure which. And and we were friends, and he said, hey, could I interv- could can I can I do an interview to include in a in a paper I'm doing, a thesis or whatever it was he was doing for college? And it was about Escobar, and so we meet at, a, at like a hotel restaurant, and there's not a lot of people in there. It was the middle of the afternoon, and I didn't realize I was doing it, but after we had talked for about two hours... He said, are you okay? And I said, I feel great. What's wrong? He said, every time a door opens, every time there's a sound, every time a phone rings, whatever noise there is, you immediately look to investigate. And you don't realize you're doing it because it's become part of your life. But that's what keeps you alive, isn't it?
0: And is that the same restaurant, Steve, where you left your gun behind?
2: No, that was a Pizza Hut.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he was so relaxed, Aaron. He left his gun.
2: Left my left waist, right. I had my gun, my creds, my handcuffs, extra mags. <laughs> it's nice you leave a whole package. Yeah, it's one stop shopping.
0: One stop shopping. But you know, but that's, that's the other thing too is that even to this day, I mean, uh, Steve, how long have you been out of the business now? You've been out since what, 2013?
1: Yep, I was tired in 13.
0: What about you, Aaron? Yeah, tw-
1: uh, 22, tw- 2002.
0: 2002. I guarantee you, same thing I do. You guys go to a restaurant, where do you sit?
2: somewhere you put you back to the wall.
0: That's right. Yeah. And what are you doing the whole time you're there? You're scanning. You're still watching the environment. Old habits die hard. We first moved to Northern Virginia, went shopping over in Leesburg. Uh, we're at the, when there was still a Kmart, uh, walking, I remember walking through the Kmart. My wife said, hey, those guys just said you were a cop. You were a cop. And I wasn't at the time, but it's like, but it's the way you look. You walk through, you're scanning everything, looking at quadrants. Where's my exit strategy? Where are the exits? You know, if this happens, what am I going to do? And it's like, it, just old habits die hard, but you're right. It's like the we had a uh, armed standoff situation one time with the guy that had that we knew he had AIDS. He was an IV drug user, got AIDS from that, had cut his chest with a knife. It was just whacked out. And we're standing there. It was only forty five minutes, but forty five minutes holding a weapon on this guy, hoping that he doesn't come across, you know, into that zone. We got done, took him into custody, thank God. and then, but that adrenaline dump at the end of 45 minutes. I have never felt so tired in my life.
1: Well, it's funny you say, you know, they know when they look at you. My daughter was 15 or 16. We were living in California and a friend of mine had tickets for the Raiders Chargers game. That's quite a, a rivalry in Oakland. He asked if I want to take it. I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I asked Megan. She says, yeah. I said, okay, so even though we're Charger fans, we're going to wear Raiders gear. Now, wait a minute. Which Raiders
0: is... was this? Was this the Oakland, the Raiders? Oakland Raiders? Okay, not the, the Las Oakland Vegas Raiders? Raiders no,
1: or the or the Los Angeles Raiders. Raiders. Yeah. So I told Megan, I said, listen, here's the deal. We're going to wear Raiders gear, you know, because we're going to volume at the, at the Oakland Coliseum. And um, just keep looking straight ahead. So we went like three hours early thinking we'll get in the parking lot. Well, three hours early at the Oakland Coliseum, you're like a mile and a half from the parking lot. That parking lot was full of, and I'm sure mostly convicted felons. So (laughs) we got our Oakland gear on. (laughs) Which was half the Oakland
0: football team, too.
1: (laughs) Right, right. So we're walking through the the parking lot and, you know, typical wise guys, hammered, smoking. You can smell pot from, you know, all the way to Alameda. I heard this guy say to the other guy, oh, look at the cop who brought his daughter to the football game. Now, I had not been a cop for eight or nine years at that point, point. I Megan says, how they know? I said, keep looking forward. Don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, they they know, look, we know, they know. Megan didn't know she wasn't supposed to talk, like just keep moving. Yeah. And, and fr- now I got my 15-year-old little girl with me and these clowns, you know, they know and I don't know how they know, but it's frightening.
0: They're as good at, I mean, that's part of their game too, right? It's like we can look at somebody and say, hey, this guy's a tweaker, he's a meth head, you know, or, you know, he's obviously, of course, the tattoos up and down the neck, you know, and the Hell's Angel cut, you know, kind (laughs) of gives it away. But, uh, but hey, I want to roll back because um, the reason I kind of laid the story for that is one of the most impactful things I read that you sent us, and I want you to talk about it too, is you talk about volunteering for Guadalajara and going down there. And it's like, you know, man, reminds me of the old, uh, uh, Army saying about the guys in Airborne, they say, only two things fall from the sky, that's bird shit and fools, you know? So only only two types of people go to Guadalajara, you know, people with a death wish and people who are just plain foolish. So what was yours? in? But the other thing I want you to talk about, though, too, is this, uh, what happened? You're there for the third night. What happens?
1: Yeah. So uh, a half step back, I had uh, gone through the process to get selected to go to Guadalajara, and it was what I wanted to do. It was kind of the reason I went to DEA, was to work in Latin America and to make a difference. And then when I learned about Kiki, that's what I wanted to do. And So we get down there and I'm there a third day and and, and Tom Gomez, who I mentioned earlier, he was the acting resident agent charge because the last one had been evacuated. And um, Tom was just a great guy, solid agent, solid big brother mentor. And so we hit it off. And of course, we were working out together at Gold's Gym and just really great guy. So, he's been assigned to the resident agent charge of Hermosillo, and we're getting our full-time rack. So, he says, hey, kid, get your gun. I want to go for a little drive. I said, where are we going? He says, you'll see. I'm like, okay. So, pop down, go in his car. He says, hey, kid, turn the stopwatch on on your Casio Ironman. I'm like, why? He says, you'll see. So, I'm like, okay, I got my gun because I'll see, and we're going to go where we're going to go, and I'll see, and turn on my watch because I'll see. So, We're driving and all of a sudden we pull up in front of this house that's totally overgrown and uh, gate busted off the front. And it's a big, it looks like a big property. And so he says, okay, turn your watch off. Tell me how long it took us to get here. So I turn it off. He says, how long? I said, 13 minutes. He says, that's the difference between life and death in Guadalajara. I'm like, okay, so you got to tell me something because I don't know where we're at. He says, we're at 881 Lope de Vega where Kiki was tortured for three days and murdered. So half a step back, I had read a book called Desperados written by Elaine Shannon, which was the the travails of, of Kiki, him, his work life being kidnapped, the torture, the interrogation, um, ultimately what happened, who was involved. And of course, they walked when they when DEA uh, did the search warrant at one Lope de Vega, they collected evidence in a lot of rooms, blood and hair and urine and sweat and all kinds of stuff. And it's portrayed in Narcos, uh, although I didn't watch that episode just to be candid. And uh, so we walked. I says, well, what are we doing here? He says, well, first of all, I want you to know 13 minutes, life and death. So don't forget. He says, now get out of the car. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what now, dude? He says, we're going to go walk through the house. And you read the book. I read the book. I did some of the investigation. He said, we're going to walk through the house. We're going to go in the rooms where certain things happen. And I want you to see it. Now I'm thinking he's pissed at me or something because he like tortured me. And But I don't say anything. We just walk through, we do the tour, get back in the car, and he says, I just want you to know, people come to Guadalajara because it's a beautiful city. Perfect weather, even better than San Diego. You know, just people are great, mariachis, tequila, everything. But this is not the Guadalajara of 10 years ago. This is Guadalajara today. It's dangerous. So when the agents come down here, I want to go fooling around and go down and drinking. And you just tell them that's not what you do here. And you caution them not to do it. Don't go with them. Tell them they shouldn't do it. And I just gave you why that is bad. And if you are not sure, bring them over here. The door's still open. Walk them to the house and get their attention. So I always tell people that was my welcome to what a story. Uh, well, actually, that's phase two of the story. The phase one uh, happened earlier than that. Actually, just a few days before that, um, Tom said to me, hey, uh, we're going out with the next Fed tonight. I said, what are we doing? He says, I'll tell you when we get in the car. Once again, you'll see.
2: I've seen a pattern here. Nobody tells you what's going on before you go do something.
0: You know, it's like I tell my kids, if you want to know, you got to go. Just get in the car.
1: (laughs) That's good. Well, that's guess what Tom was saying, right? So I get in the car. It was my first trip to the Comandancia, the federal police uh, office. We get out of the car. He says, here's the guys. He introduced me to two guys. One of them hands me an (laughs) AK-47. The other one hands Tom AK-47. They said, get in the back seat of the car. I'm like, well, at least I got a gun, and I'm sitting behind them. Sounds so like I'll, you're getting probably, ready
0: to do a drive-by. What's going on? Well, gang initiation? Actually, What's going on here?
1: So I get in the back seat, and uh, Tom says, listen, I just want you guys to know, he introduces me. And he says, I brought Aaron because he's a former SWAT guy. He's been involved in many shootouts. He's killed people. He doesn't care about it. It's not a problem for him. So let's go. So I look at Tom. like, oh, okay. So <laughs> I know. I'm going to see. But maybe you could tell me a little more now that I'm in the car <laughs> with my own gun. And uh, so he starts talking with the guys. And at the time, Miguel Felix Gallardo was the head of the Guadalajara cartel who had orchestrated the kidnapping and torture and murder of Kiki, along with his, you know, psycho partner, Rafael Caro Quintero.
0: Who is still at large with a $20 million bounty on his head.
1: He can't be arrested soon enough. Um, so I said, what are we doing? And, and Tommy says, we think we know where Miguel Felix is. We're going to try to catch him. And... Uh, but we're armed to the teeth because we understand that he's got hand grenades on his body, kind of a self-detonating uh, vest if he gets caught. And uh, But he's the number one guy, so we're going looking for him. And if you see him reaching for something under his shirt, his hands go anywhere but up in the air, we're shooting, and then just so you know, we're going back to the consulate, then we're leaving the country. And I'm like, holy moly. Like I didn't, you just don't know, right? Who, who anticipated this was gonna happen? So we did that for three or four nights. We couldn't find him. And uh, then we were told, you know, cease and desist. They're sending a special squad up from from Mexico City to find Miguel Felix, and they did find him in his house. And uh, I I think it was all prearranged. But nonetheless, the idea that I had been given an AK-47 with my boss, I'm going to go, you know, maybe kill the world's most dangerous trafficker at the time. uh, It was not something I was used to, frankly, growing up, you know, in San Diego. And just it was uh, a different mindset going to work there. That's a real welcome to Mexico, isn't it? I mean, those of reality right? right there. Right. And I've been in Mexico much of my life. My dad played softball down there. We took all of our friends and cousins to Tijuana when they would come. Uh, when I was 16, we'd go to Rosarito Beach, you know, and dance and drink and eat lobster for $5 on the coast. And just, it was a very different Mexico than the one I thought I grew up in and knew.
0: Hey, just for a point of clarification, too, the house that you went to, we know we talked about, they said that it was shown on Narcos, uh, but that was not the exact same house on Narcos,
1: or was it? I don't think it was. I, you know, I didn't watch the episodes, so I can't say, but I don't think so. Steve, do you know?
2: I don't. And it's funny because I just watched, the Connie and I watched the, those episodes last week. That's the first time we've been able to watch, that we've chosen to watch Kiki's death.
0: Hey, I want to ask you something, though, because I'm going to bring this up, too, because I don't care. You know, I'm like Ricky Gervais. I don't care anymore after his 2020, you know, Golden Globes thing. But there was a piece of shit documentary on Amazon Prime called The Last Narc that that said that the CIA was involved. I mean, what was that guy's name again, Steve? Hector.
1: Hector. Yep. Hector Braves.
0: Yeah. I I mean— I don't want to talk ill of one of your kind, but I'm going to for this guy, because this guy sold his fucking soul for money to tell a story that has been disproven many, many times over. I'm surprised that Amazon picked it up, but this bullshit that the CIA was involved in it, that other DEA people were involved in it, I mean, to me, it had to affect you when you you were down there. So when you heard about this last NARC coming out and what Hector was involved in... I mean, that sends you through the roof? Were you going to do another drive-by? Did you get an AK-47? I mean, because I mean, I would have been like, let's let's load up. Let's go find this guy and beat his ass. I hate to say that about one of your fellow DEA agents, but I thought that that was just to sell your soul like that and throw your agency under the bus and accuse other law, American law enforcement of conspiring to kidnap one of their own and kill them, Just That's beyond the pale.
1: I couldn't. What did you think, Steve, when you heard about it? Well, actually, I've dealt
2: with Hector a little bit on the, on the Narcos. They were talking, the Narcos series, uh, they were actually talking to, to him about getting part of his story, and then uh, he thought he was going to become a millionaire out of it. And, and I got to tell you, you know, what Javier, we worked for Netflix or Gamont or the Narcos series for two years. What I made from Narcos combined with my re- government retirement check, I made more as a working agent for the government. So it's not a lot of money. I mean, it's 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 you know it's nice to get a check every time an episode's uh, edited, but it's not that much money. So um, when he thought he had a deal worked out, he called me. I was in New York at some meetings, and, and he said, uh, hey, just want to let you know, I think we've worked out a deal. My lawyer's talked to Netflix. Looks like we're going to sign the contract next week. And I said, well, did you get your million dollars? He said, no, 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 you were right. You know, we're, we're getting a small amount of money. And he said, that's why I'm calling you should I sign this contract for that little bit amount of money? And I said, Hector, there's only one question here. Is anybody else offering that money for your story? No, nobody is. And I said, well, there's your answer. You either do it or you don't. Well, then the, the Netflix scout was killed and murdered, uh, was murdered in Mexico doing, you know, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he didn't make the right connections. So uh, that nixed Hector's contract with Netflix. And then the next thing you know, he's got this thing going with Amazon Prime. And if you've watched it, the three guys he brings on there to support his argument, all three of those should be on death row. They shouldn't be out running around like that. And then that one psycho, you know, he tells a story and then he gets that thousand yard stare like, you know, he just went freaking crazy sitting in his chair. I mean, those you should never entertain people like that. Those are stone cold murderers is all they are. And,
1: and he's giving them airtime. time. It, it really pisses everybody off in DEA. I couldn't, I didn't watch it. I just thought, to your point, Morgan, I thought if I did watch it, who knows how I'd react. And I'm not a reactionary kind of guy. You know, I, I learned in Mexico how to compartmentalize stuff and say, okay. Or as my dad would say, wait for your day, right? Be patient, your deal. So I didn't watch it. But I must have gotten a hundred emails and phone calls from friends who were not DEA saying, did you see this? Is this possibly true? So that's what made me mad. And, but see, I had another experience with that guy. I'm sitting in Guadalajara one day, uh, one evening, and we had uh, four cable channels in English at the apartment complex we lived in. And I always said I felt like I was, you know, Bernard Shaw's nephew or younger brother because he was the man on CNN and we'd watch CNN every night and what have you. So we turn on the news and they're announcing that the DEA kidnapped Dr. Alvarez Machain in Guadalajara that day.
0: And tell everybody who that guy is.
1: So Alvarez Machain was a doctor... Who the traffickers used in Guadalajara to keep Kiki alive while they tortured him, and they were in, he was injecting insulin uh, into uh, Kiki, and uh, every time he'd lose consciousness, he would bring him back to life so they could keep, so they could torture him longer. And he was the uh, the uh, brother-in-law of a former president of Mexico, Echeverria. So um, this doctor that was uh, they had some people had tape recorded these these. Uh, Interrogations and torture, and they had positively identified him as being at the house, keeping Kiki alive, administering first aid so he could continue the torture and abuse. And so, lo and behold, Barea's orchestrates a kidnapping of the doctor in his office in daylight, with some police officers from a neighboring state, throw him on a plane and fly him north. But they didn't tell us about it. So now it's six o'clock at night, and I'm watching the news. I call my wait, wait a minute, back up. This
0: guy, Hector, the same one we're talking about, orchestrated an extrajudicial rendition of a doctor across a border with, without authorization?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm not saying that part. I'm saying he was in charge of Operation Leyenda, and Operation Leyenda executed this, this kidnapping and arrest. I shoved him
2: through the fence.
0: Well, there's one thing about making an arrest, and look, we had a homicide case one time where we w- wish that the Mexican police would have thrown our suspect across the border because we knew exactly where he was. But but that kind of is, well, let me ask you something. Is that something that would have been, if if that were approved, well, just let's type hypothetically, that would have had to have been approved at the highest levels. Uh, an agent in Guadalajara is not going to just go uh, John Wayne like that and take somebody across the border, or are they? Well, here's
1: the thing that 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 was so disturbing. We were not even aware they were doing it. They used Mexican state police officers from a neighboring state to do this activity. So I'm sure they would hide behind the fact that I don't know how he got there. He just got th- he just, you know got thrown over the fence, and we recognized it was him. Coincidentally, we're there, and, and uh, there was an arrest warrant for him, so we arrested him. But the fact that they didn't tell the agents living in that city that this was going to hit the fan on worldwide news, so now— Imagine this, so we're there under diplomatic cover as assistant attaches at the U.S. consulate. And within days, our name and the city we live in is in every newspaper in the Republic of Mexico. It's in Proceso Magazine, which is like Time or Newsweek in Mexico. And we've been telling everybody we work at the consulate as assistant attache, and you know, you have a wife with you and you're trying to blend in and you know, not let anybody know who you are. Now all of a sudden, everybody in the Republic knows who you are and where you're at. Because, of course, the, the exterior department for uh, Mexico has all of our pictures and our names where we live because we had to give them to them to get visas to come in the country. And now every, everywhere across the country, they know who we are and what we do. And so now, you know, we were working at a Gold's Gym, can't go there anymore. Everybody knows who you are. And there was a trafficking group that ran uh, trucks for Caro Quintero who owned Gold's Gym. If you had money, you owned everything. And if you owned everything, you probably were a trafficker. And so, you know, we had that happen. And so, of course, that was the first time I I had to send Karen home um, back to the U.S. because, you know, we thought it was going to hit the fan. And next thing you knew, the, the the DEA Air Wing was flying to Guadalajara to take us to Mexico City. Well, we figured out what, what do we do next because now everybody knows who we are and where we are. And, you know, it's somewhere between mad and, and scared because the reality is they know where you are. They know who you are. And... Look, I don't—right, wrong, or indifferent, you know, the the Supreme Court has said we can do those arrests in foreign countries as part of the Noriega deal. But it seems to me a common courtesy to let your agents know, here's what we're going to do in your city so you can be aware and be prepared.
0: Yeah, because they just submitted—they just subjected you to the biggest shit show in Mexico at that time. They put your personal safety at risk, your family's safety. It's—you go into it knowing that there's risk, Right. But for somebody to do something like that, not give you a heads up, not let you pre-plan, move people out of the area before something like this happens, I mean, somebody, I, I guarantee you, just in my little brain here, I'm thinking about it, but I guarantee you, the minute they found out about this, I guarantee you there were some people thinking, oh, now that we know where the guy is, we're going to go take a shot.
1: No doubt. And and that's, the t- you know, it's funny you say that because, look, I signed up for it. And I know Steve had the same experience and so did every agent who had a, a wife or family at post. We signed up for it. So smart or not, at least it was a, a knowing decision. But you don't subject your wife and family to that. And somebody else took it upon themselves to put my wife, in my mind, at risk. And obviously, to this day, thirty years later, I'm still pissed off about it because I don't think it was right. And then this Amazon thing. I don't. You know, uh, I saw a, a letter from former administrator Jack Lawn on the retired Agent association, who called BS on that entire thing. And he was a friggin' hero after Kiki was kidnapped and murdered. I mean, absolute hero. And, you know, we don't say that about ex-FBI agents very often, but he came from the Bureau to become the administrator at DEA, and he actually was the administrator who swore me in and gave me my badge and, and graduation certificate, and I, to this day, I think he's a hero. And um, he was not aware of the day they were doing it when they were doing it. He was at the the International Archives Conference down in Panama, I think, that day. And uh, yeah, it was a bad thing. I don't think it was right, and... Uh, for a hundred reasons.
2: Well, you know too when that when this show came out on Amazon, uh like you said they did audio record Kiki's torture. And my understanding is they wanted to play some of those audio recordings in that show and they eventually decided, you know, that's pretty cold and ruthless. Uh so they just they wrote out transcripts of portions of it. But the worst part about this whole thing is all it did was upset Kiki's family, his wife, his his children, you know, uh poor Mika she doesn't know who to believe now because all of a sudden, you know, she DEA still supports that family. I've had the honor of meeting her. Uh, as a matter of fact, you guys, we go to the Southern California Game Conference, hopefully later this year, depending on COVID. Uh, there's a very good chance that they or or Kiki's son might be there. So we've had the honor of meeting all of them. And what a shame to put the family repeatedly through this crap so somebody could earn a few bucks on the side. I can't no, imagine. That's it's not, that's not part of my law enforcement family.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, but but the reason I brought that up too is um, there was a lot of... I think people sometimes don't realize the amount of history in just one area. And this area in Guadalajara, you know, what you're involved in, you've got Victor, you've got Kiki, you've got all of these cases. I mean, there is so many things now that we talk about now that happened 20, you know, 30 years ago um, that are still... People say, you know, Steve, we get this all the time with you, with, you know, you and JP, it's like, you were even shocked that people still cared about Pablo Escobar, you know, 30 years later. You know, we talk about mafia people 30 years later. I mean, there is just some things about this, and I don't know if it's kind of a purian interest or it's one of these people live vicariously, but I'm amazed too sometimes is that there is so much fascination with events that happened 30, 40 years ago, and they, they they turn them into podcasts and they turn them into shows now. Not that I'm not knocking Narcos or anything like that. I mean, I, the great thing about Narcos, like you always say, Steve, is uh, Eric Newman did it did it right. He did it justice. He didn't make Pablo into the frickin' Robin Hood or anything else. But this thing on Last Narc make it look like Hector was the tortured soul who was the only one that was going to tell the truth and, you know, just the, the, the mannerisms. I mean, I watched about half an episode and I said, I was trying to watch it for professional reasons and curiosity, but after half an episode, I said, fuck this. I'm sorry I even turned it on, and it got into my play stream.
2: Yeah, you know, and and I was watching that, and and so I know you guys have been involved in shootings and people being killed, and and we have as well. Have we ever talked about that? That's not something you talk about. If you watch that show, you see Hector on there talking about, oh, yeah, we went in and we came under fire, so I pulled everybody out, and then I took a car, and I went in by myself. And I remember seeing this guy in a corn silo shooting down at us, a sniper. So I ran in the corn silo, and I shot up through the roof, and he came falling down, and he's laughing about it. You know, I mean, what a bunch of crap. Holy cow. It's, I mean, this guy is off the rail.
0: The ones that got to sit and talk about it and brag about it all the time, you know, just that's— It probably
2: didn't happen that way.
0: Now, The real operators—it's like my dad was a World War II vet. How many World War II vets, you know, sat and talked about the good old days and— they didn't. You know, it was just not something that you talked about. You knew what they did. You know, they're real operators. But uh, anyway, uh, we probably beat this up a little bit. I maybe yeah. took us on a side channel here. That's but, all right. Uh, let's, let's get back to our regularly scheduled podcast with you, Aaron. But you know, the thing about Guadalajara too was um, it is a small world, a very small world. And speaking of a small world, you're talking about your wife and your infant. We're going to talk about a few things before we get to talking about the counterfeit meds and stuff. But And you have a very interesting story, too, with Steve Jobs I got to get to because I'm a huge Mac fan. But besides that, going back, it was a very small world. You were on a plane one time, and there was somebody who you had helped put in prison, right? Sitting right next to you on the plane, going to where? To Guadalajara?
1: You know, we talked about this before. You go out to a restaurant, and there's somebody you put in jail. You go out to lunch, and there's somebody you're working undercover on. So um, in the mid-'80s, I was doing a hand-to-hand heroin deal with a guy in Oakland. It was kind of, I still remember it was kind of funny. He was sitting in the front seat with me and the informant was in the back seat and we pull up and he gets in. And I said, well, where's that? It was three or four ounces of, of Mexican tar heroin. He says, it's, it's right there. I said, I don't see it. He says, it's in the bushes. I said, well, go friggin' get it. No, I'm not getting it. If I touch it, then I get arrested for selling. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't explain the law, but I thought I was, okay. So I told the informant, dude, go get the heroin out of the friggin' bushes. So he goes and gets it, brings it back to me, hands it to the idiot, trafficker. He hands it to me. I said, this is the stuff you put in the bushes, is there anything else in the bushes we should know about? No, that's it. I said, okay, good. I gave the bus signal. He went to prison. And it was a minimum mandatory five years. And so he goes to prison. Fast forward, we get selected for Guadalajara. I go to language school, come back. Uh, we go down to Mexico. And then, uh, you know, we wanted to start a family. So, um, Karen goes uh, to the United States to give birth in Minnesota, and then for, uh, in October, and then from October, she flies to San Diego to my mom's house, and I fly up for Christmas. So first, I see my son, I, I was late for the delivery, because, you know, airplanes, and she went a week early, I blame her, but nonetheless... <laughs> oh, that's going to go I over it. well. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, listen, I missed it, and she, and she still named him after my father, and I wasn't even there, so that's how awesome she is. Which little town in Minnesota, by the way? Alexandria, Minnesota. It's halfway between... Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Fargo, kind of equidistant.
0: Oh, Fargo-y. Yeah, my my uh, brother-in-law and my sister live up in Apple Valley, just outside the Twin Cities. And, uh, you know, that's a beautiful area up there, too. Land of 10,000 lakes, you know. And, beautiful. But, but Fargo-y. We'll have to yeah. talk about Fargo later. Yeah, hey.
1: my mother-in-law's from Fargo. And she's, you know, in the world of everybody talks about, oh, my mother-in-law. I have a different story. My mother-in-law is why I married my wife. She is awesome. She was, we play golf together. We'd have lunch together, which is awesome. There's just no doubt in my mind. If this girl I'm dating is going to grow up to be like her mother, I'm going to marry this girl. And I was, I'm very I felt fortunate the same to have in this. Really? Yeah. I have yeah. the best You in
0: you were, You were playing golf with his mother-in-law too? Steve, what?
2: Yeah, I didn't think you'd pick up on that. You shouldn't
1: have said anything. Yeah, you know, I got pictures, all right, buddy. So. And he left his gun at the clubhouse too, just so you know. He's also left it there. Different story. His so, wife
0: said he left his gun somewhere too, apparently. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... I go home for to San Diego for Christmas and hanging out with my, you know, then two-month-old son and my mom. I was really excited. At the time, you really couldn't fly from what I had to San Diego. You had either fly to L.A. and come back or fly to Tijuana and go across the border. So we'd fly to Tijuana and somebody pick us up and uh, or I'd take a cab to the border and walk across. So this day, my brother drives us down to the Tijuana airport and, we, you know, the car seat and the bags and just a ton of stuff and sneaking my gun on and blah, blah, blah. And, I had to check the gun because I couldn't get through the magnetometer. So when I'm on the plane unarmed. We're getting Karen situated and Jackson is in his little chair. And I look I look up and who's walking down the aisle? The dude I put in prison for five years for heroin. He looks right at me. I look right at him. Hi, oh, buddy. Yeah. Hi, friend. Hey, bud. How's things? And I start doing the math in my head. He must have just got out of prison. Now he's being deported. And now I get to see him on his flight home. To and, of course, you're looking, I'm thinking about the booking sheet, right, and the 202. And I'm thinking, oh. That's him going home. And I wanna play with him with my infant. And didn't he have a special message for you at his sentencing? He did have a special message for me. I was sitting behind him at the sentencing and he turned around when he got five years says, I'll fucking kill you next time I see you. Just remember that. I'm like, I'm thinking what's the chance you see me again, buddy? So
0: <laughs> obviously based on this conversation pretty good. Apparently yeah.
1: better than I imagined. <laughs> so I I'm like, okay, dude, I'll see you when I see you. You know, I was a cavalier, like, you're not gonna scare me, whatever. And uh, here he comes. I'm thinking, that first thing I'm thinking is, okay, I remember he's from what I had. I remember he was gonna kill me next time he saw me. And then he sits in the seat right next, right across the aisle from me. I'm like, gee, am like, can you, I mean, really? So I lean over, I put my hand out, shake hands, he shakes my hand, and I said, I'm sure we're not gonna have a problem. But, you know, if we are, it's gonna end badly for you. So let's just be nice, smile. He just looks at me, looks away. So I'm like, well, like I, like I did every time I, we had one of these incidents, I have to tell Karen what's going on because she's got to know that duck, run, or take cover. So I say, hey, honey, here's what's going on. She just looked at me. I never forget, just looked at me and looked back at her magazine. <laughs> did,
0: it's like, did, whatever.
1: Didn't you know? say, it was either, are you freaking or just handle it, dude. But it wasn't that she was saying that. Like, she just looked at me.
2: Well, well, that's, the, that's the cool thing. That's the cool thing about our wives is they got bigger balls than we ever dreamed oh. of having.
1: <laughs> and they had confidence we were going to handle it, right? She didn't know. I was scared. Like, I don't know. We're going to get off the plane and his family's waiting for us.
0: She didn't know what was going through your head, which was Mike Tyson's words. Like, everybody had the plan until they get punched in the face. Exactly. <laughs> and she assumed
1: I had a plan. And I assumed I going to get punched in the face. So it wasn't going to work out well. So, But I didn't. I don't want to act like I was scared because then she'd be scared. I'm like, okay, so, okay, I guess I got it. And, uh, you know, we, we we I don't check bags, but when you got a baby, you got an infant, you got all that stuff. So we get off the plane, we get our stuff. I never ran so fast with an infant, and a wife, and eight bags that I did that day from the carousel to the car where my guns were. And, uh, you know, I never saw them again that I'm aware of. But that was just a tough welcome back to Guadalajara, you know, trip. Like, what the heck? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Mm-mm-mm. Well,
0: there, you have a lot of stories and we're gonna get to those. I think we're gonna have to do another episode on this, but what we're gonna do is you had a lot of experience inside DEA that's going to prepare you for something later. And this is one of the reasons for the episode today is we wanted to talk about, we've talked about, uh, we when we had Sherry Oz on, we talked about fentanyl. Um, we've talked to other people about, uh, you know, the amount of drugs that are coming on. But one of the things we've seen too, is some of the deaths that have happened because of counterfeit medications, you know, and One of the things we wanted to talk about, and a couple things that shocked me, I know shocked Steve, when you started talking about some of the work you're doing with counterfeit medication, we've seen what happens when people take counterfeit Xanax or other stuff. It's been laced with fentanyl. People have died from this stuff. But you had an interesting path to get there because I want to ask you about your time to work with Steve Jobs as well because I'm a huge Mac fan. You know, Steve Jobs was an asshole, but he was a very visionary asshole, you know. But um, so how did you, you left DEA in 2002. How did you get involved in doing some of this work now where you were looking at product tampering and diversion and counterfeit stuff? I mean, how did you go from working narcotics and dope to now in the corporate world doing this kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, so when I first left DEA, I took a job with the FDA Office of Criminal Investigations, and it was a new agency as part of FDA. Uh, beyond their regulatory remit, it was a law enforcement agency.
0: Well, wait a minute. Did you join the FDA because at least two of those letters still had D- DNA in them, like, like DEA? I, I, I mean, got
1: limited vocabulary. I got limited You only had to learn space. one new letter, F. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it worked out okay. The OCI now part is strong FDA
0: also Now,
1: did FDA also stand for fuck the agency? No, no, no. No, no, no. But DEA stood for don't expect anything. I anything. And that's why, or, right? I or got... drunk
0: every afternoon. Well, yeah, just, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly as Murph says. So, uh, but anyway, so I get the FDOCI, and, and their remit really was counterfeiting and tampering. There was a lot of issues with the Food, Drug, Cosmetic Act, which is very complex. I think it was authored by Abraham Lincoln. It's very old act; needs to be updated. But uh, we saw a lot of tamperings and 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 we started to see his counterfeit medicines. And it was crazy the stuff we were seeing. So I started what kind
0: with- of counterfeit stuff were you starting to see? Because you remember we had that Tylenol scare, you know before that, years before you know where the Tylenol was tampered with. That was kind of I think the watershed moment for the us. to realize that, hey man, you cannot sell even over the counter stuff without proper packaging and sealant because, like the guy did, you could adulterate the the, the supply.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because I use that as an example when I train law enforcement or speak with doctors and nurses about the potential risks uh, of counterfeiting and how easy it is to do. And a lot of people don't know, you know, you think about all the people who died and who was arrested for that, nobody, because it was so easy to do. And so fast forward, we started seeing uh, fluoxetine, which is a, a Prozac, was one of the first counterfeit medicines I saw. And I had a private investigator uh, visit me on behalf of Eli Lilly when I was with FDOCI. And he said, we think we have counterfeit Prozac in the market. We don't know, but that's what we're hearing. So, again, I still spend a lot of time in Tijuana. I would go down there for lunch or whatever. And so I could easily go into the pharmacies, buy stuff without a prescription. So I was going down and buying uh, Prozac and some other stuff. And you guys remember the Roofy issue uh, that were selling rohypnol? Was it we're
0: called Rohipnol. Yeah. yeah the, the date rape drink. Yep.
1: And so that was the other question was, okay, how prevalent is that? And so I had pharmacies in Tijuana that could wander in, and I spoke Spanish, and I'd go buy different things. And I remember one day we were concerned about the Rohypnol situation, so I was down buying some Prozac. So I asked the pharmacy where I was at if I could get some Rohypnol, and she says, well, you have to have a prescription for that, which was kind of surprising to me because you didn't really for anything else. And I said, oh, really? Because I don't have one. She says, that's okay. You can go to my OBGYN right next door, and he'll write you a prescription. I'm like, okay. So... (laughs) Went next door. Yep. My first OBGYN appointment. Gave the guy five and bucks. And
0: how did it go for you? Did you have to get up on a table I and got, put your feet in the almost,
1: stirrups? I and... almost fell off the table. My left foot was stuck in the stirrup. I didn't know how to get it out. But I, I managed. <laughs> I, uh, hey, so this I is the, a don't
2: ask, don't tell show. Right.
1: So I got the prescription. <laughs> I go back. She gives me the real And now for five bucks for the doctor and $10 for 20 tablets. This was like white death. And it was that easy to bring across the border. So anyway, that was my exposure to to counterfeit medicines, corporate security.
0: real quick at that time, when you talked about bringing it across the border, I know they've gotten better now because they've got machines now that can instantly analyze things and tell, you know, what they are, if they've got fentanyl or carfentanil or, you know, cocaine or whatever else. But at that time, there was not a lot of recognition of this type of medication and stuff coming across the border, was there? I mean, it was there was not a whole lot of awareness that said, hey, this is not right. This is counterfeit. This requires a prescription.
1: Even today, it's not great. Um, today, if it's a narcotic like a fentanyl, Dogs are trained to recognize narcotics and detect narcotics, and there's tests out there like the ones we all used—the quick, uh, you know, presumptive field analysis test where you click the vials and it turns a different set of colors, and you know. But for typical prescription drugs, Prozac, Cialis, Viagra, whatever, there's no test like that, and dogs aren't going to hit on that. So it was. So do the
0: Cialis and Viagra pills stand out when you see them?
1: The counterfeit ones.
0: You're you're missing the joke. You're missing the the joke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry, okay. Aaron. you guys can't see this. Okay, quick. Which which hand is the Viagra pill in? <laughs> okay,
1: <sorry>. that's good. <laughs> sorry, no, I, I, I
0: digress. We have to have a little fun now.
1: Yeah. So it was. So that's what we were seeing when I was with the FDOCI. Um, and then I, I was offered a position with with uh, Bristol Myers Squibb to look more at these kind of issues. Fast forward, um, I've been with a couple of major, you know, Fortune 100 pharmaceutical oh, no, companies. No, no,
0: you're, you're fast forwarding too fast. Where did Apple come in at? Because I want to talk about Apple for a minute. So, but now Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, how did you did one of the reasons you get an offer for them is because of their work with you at uh, at the fda
1: yeah that's so that's what happened when I was doing these cases and finding more information and then briefing industry on what we were seeing the industry was great partners for law enforcement. And the the uh, vice president of corporate security for Eli for uh, excuse me Bristol Myers Squibb, an amazing gentleman named John John Glover, who had been the number two guy at at the FBI, he was now the VP at Bristol Myers Squibb. He invited me back to to DC for a meeting, and we drove around town and talked. And to this day, I, I remain you know a huge fan of his. So he asked if I'd be interested in transitioning to corporate security. And honestly, probably Steve would have had the same observation and so would you when you still have badges like, what's corporate security? I just imagine that's the guy with all the rings on, the, all the keys on the ring on the side of his belt and you can like open. Like Paul
0: Blart, mall cop. By the way, I got to point out, this is the second FBI agent you said you had a lot of respect for. Steve, either we're lowering our standards or you got the wrong guest on here.
2: Well, I, we were in a bind. <laughs> <laughs> Scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. Thanks, Steve.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, what are friends all, for? but the reality was, right, if we want to have the understand industry and we want industry to understand law enforcement, let's have a marriage. And so, uh, that's how I got there. And so, I worked for a couple of companies. I'm not going to go into the names so we don't offend anybody, but. Uh, then one of my bosses had accepted the first had a corporate security job for Apple, and they were going to run everything, which made sense. You know, like you said, you're a huge fan of Steve's, and Steve was a real pirate, so he did stuff the way he did it. Didn't mean it was traditional or customary or the way anybody else did it, and he wasn't going to do it the way somebody else did it just because they did it that way. He going to do it his way. Most often it worked, and sometimes it didn't, and... Um, so he hired a friend of mine to become the vice president, start the group. And then he called me and said, hey, I would worked for him before. And he said, hey, you want to come here and do the anti-counterfeiting? I said, oh, the family's all Apple fans. Why not? Move back to California. So I got out there. And, you know, there's a lot of rumors about how Steve behaves and treats people and grumpy or whatever. I didn't know. I wasn't a Steve Jobs. Like, I didn't read all about him. Just wasn't. Well, I can't read. So I wasn't doing that. But I don't. I just didn't, that wasn't my thing. We
0: caught that too. Yeah, yeah, we know, we
1: we all know. So, uh, but I had heard rumors about, you know, you could get, you don't really want to go to the fourth floor at one infinite loop because that's the floor Steve's on. And if you got on the elevator with him, you could be fired when you got to the main floor. I'm like, well, that won't happen because I don't go to that floor. So I went up to see the general counsel one day, who was on the fourth floor, didn't really think about it, get on the elevator. First time I see Steve. And it was also rumored that Steve would ask you, what's your name? What do you do here? and You better have your, the old elevator pitch literally. Prepared, so I was prepared. So there's Steve Jobs. I'm like, Holy crap, that's Steve! So he looks at my badge, and says, "What's your name?" I want to say uh, same as on the badge, your buddy, but I said, on, "I'm Aaron." Read. Yeah, can't you read? <laughs> so I, I'm Aaron. I shake shake his hand. He says, "What do you do?" I said, "I run the, the anti-counterfeiting group." Oh, you're the guy whose job I approved for six months. I gave myself six months, and he had approved jobs at a certain level, which mine was that. So I looked at him, kind of confused. He says, "Yeah, didn't they tell you it's a temporary assignment, unless..." you know, you prove that we need to have you here? I said, no, they must have left that part out. He says, yeah, I told him, we don't need this, we don't have a counterfeiting problem. And so I said, well, I hope I prove you wrong. And he says, well, good luck, got off the elevator. I'm like, holy crap, went back, told my boss, he says, well, yeah, he said that, but I knew you'd prove him wrong. I like, you might've want to give me a heads up before I move my wife and daughter out here. So lo and behold, of course, like any commodity worth having, the pirates were knocking it off. And it didn't take long to figure that out. I went down to Argentina, I went to China, I went to a few places, and it was everywhere. So I, when I had gotten something uh, from, I was in the UAE, and had gotten a beautiful red uh, iPhone with a radio in it, which, of course, we didn't make red phones at the time, nor do we make iPhones with radios in them. So I sent it over to Steve's office in an inner office envelope. (laughs) Two days later, I get it back with a sticky. Find these fuckers, Steve. I'm like, Oh. I guess he knows. Well, then it became like a recurring thing, you know, and people in like you're a you're an Apple fan and a Steve Jobs fan. Everybody feels like they know Steve. God rest his soul. And so if they saw something counterfeit, they were offended, personally offended that people were selling counterfeit Apple stuff. And they would send it to Steve. Apple, Cupertino, California, Steve. I know enough
0: about Steve. A buddy of mine wrote a book. Um... Um, several books about him, but one's called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. Carmine Gallo wrote these. But I think the thing that offended Steve more than anything else wasn't so much the fact that they were counterfeiting it, but Steve paid so much time and attention to quality and design and the experience. These things couldn't deliver on the experience. Had they delivered on the experience, he might have hired the people to come be designers. But I think the thing that offended him more than anything else was the brand impact it was having on the reputation of Apple that he would go, we would never make anything this crappy.
1: Well, you know, it's funny when when I told him I'd been down in Argentina to a training and, and I was getting all this product from the Argentina Customs. He's like, why would you go down there? We don't even sell stuff down there. I said, well, not you, but somebody's selling a lot of Apple stuff down there. You know what, Steve? When they get this piece of crap from China and it doesn't work right, that's their first introduction to an Apple product. And it sucks. They're not going to buy another one. Yeah, but it's not ours. I said, well, they don't know that, Steve, because here it is. Got an Apple on it. Oh. So it was like the first realization that So then about every week or two, I'd get an office envelope. Some Apple fan had sent him a counterfeit item from Malaysia, Thailand, China, wherever. Sent it to him, and he would send it to me with the same sticky. Find these fuckers. Steve.
0: Hey, players, that is the end of part one with Aaron Graham. We're going to have part two coming out this Thursday. In the meantime, make sure you visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And make sure you go visit us at Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a lot of good stuff waiting for you over there. And what's waiting for you on Thursday is part two of Aaron Graham talking about the rise of counterfeit medications.